0: My co-host and my partner in all things strategery is Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at CSIS.
1: Elliot, welcome. Well, thank you. It's, it's good to be here since I, I know we're going to be talking a lot about the uh, follies of the United States. I want to bring you a little bit of good news from the heartland. So I was uh, in Columbus, Ohio over the weekend for a Convention of about 1,300 magicians. And uh, there waiting in line was none other than Lance Burton. Now, if you remember, Lance Burton was probably the most famous magician in the world. He had a, an entire theater built for himself at the, the Monte Carlo Resort in Las Vegas. And after he finally retired, because it was just such a physically demanding thing, what does he do? Well, he goes back to his Kentucky roots. And he's living as a farmer in Kentucky, helping young magicians along and tending to his thirty Angus beef cattle. So you know, it was a, a great American reverting to being, you know, someone from the the heartland. It was very, very encouraging. Now we can get back to the disasters of the 20th century. We start century. now.
2: <laughs> Let's start. Why
1: don't we start the
2: program now?
0: <laughs> so, Let me introduce our special guest. I'm really pleased to have him, Robert William Kagan, whom I've known for almost 50 years now, is a renowned scholar of American foreign relations. He's a senior fellow, I think, uh, at, the, at the Brookings Institution. I'm not sure what your title is at Brookings, Bob. I'm working,
2: but, at, I'm working up to senior fellow. I'm hoping to get there in a couple of years
0: but bob is uh, a renowned author he is the author of paradise and power the return of history the world america made the jungle grows back and of course dangerous nation and the next volume in that series the ghost at the feast america and the collapse of world order 1900 to 1941 bob welcome to the shield of the republic we're really glad to have you
2: well it's great to be here it's great to be with old friends great to talk to you both
0: so let me let me start by asking you to Tell our listeners a little bit about the main themes. You start the book uh, with the Spanish-American War and America, America's arrival, essentially, uh, as a world power on the international scene, and the the sort of ambivalence with which many Americans receive that sort of news and, and take on that road. Tell us a little bit about how you see that playing out and what you think the book is really all about.
2: Well, I, one of the things that I discovered in the, uh, as I was researching, especially that, that early period where, uh, of the, the Spanish-American War and its aftermath, and, and, a, and a journalist writing at the time said, uh, for Americans, world power had not been on the menu. And I think that it's true that when we, we talk about America as a world power, I assume what we mean by that is a power that is, in fact, taking part in world affairs uh, and has certain ambitions in the world. And I think it's fair to say that even after the Spanish-American War and even after the accidental acquisition of the Philippines, that the American people did not think of themselves as a world power. They thought of themselves fundamentally as a regional power. Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt himself and Henry Cabot Lodge uh, were not interested in expanding beyond what they regarded as the hemisphere which which included what they called the outworks uh which included Hawaii and some of the other islands. but they did not have imperial ambitions uh in Asia despite what legions of historians have written and and, and so I would say most Americans really were perfectly content to live in what they regarded as a, as a world that was quite conducive to their needs without them having to do anything about it. I don't even think they were conscious of the fact that they lived in a world order that was protected by others, in that case, the British, but they certainly had no desire to run the, the world order themselves. And so it really was that there was increased American foreign policy activity in this period. But it was pretty quiet during the Roosevelt years, if, if, as you recall. I mean, after the Spanish-American War, Roosevelt never fires another shot in anger, uh, in the United, in his seven years as president. And no one expected that Woodrow Wilson was going to be, uh, very active in foreign policy. So in a way, the, the world order part of it, the world, the sort of world power part of it snuck up on the United States. And they were sort of thrust into that position, uh, primarily by the circumstances that led to World War
0: I.
1: Bob, is it fair to say that another big theme of the book is that the United States had the opportunity to reshape the world order at the end of World War One and muffed it, and uh, not only we but a lot of others paid a price for that.
2: Yeah, and thank you know, thanks for getting right to the core of it. I think if I don't know what there's, there's many themes in the book, but if there was one message that I that I think I'd like to get out of this book, and which I think is a little bit contrary to sort of conventional wisdom, both as it refers to American foreign policy, but also as it refers to Versailles and the peace agreement that that ultimately failed. I do think that if you look at where the United States and the rest of the world were in 1919, there never was a more sort of accommodating world in terms of building a a relatively peaceful, liberal world order at, at relatively minimal cost. If you think about what the situation was at the time, the only potential challengers to a liberal world order in that period were all on their backs, at weak, uh, incapable of wielding any influence. I, you know, whether you're talking about uh, the, the Bolsheviks in Russia, they were you know, still in, in the throes of civil war. Uh, Germany, of course, was completely flat on its back. Uh, And really, Mussolini had yet to build up any steam other than his own uh, movements in Italy. And so uh, who were the other great powers that really had power at that time? Democratic Britain and Democratic France, both of whom wanted the United States to continue to play a role. And I think if you think about what we had to do after World War II, The United States could have actually played a significant role in imposing a world peace at much less cost to the United States, exercising much less global hegemony uh, around the world, requiring fewer troops to be deployed around the world, etc. All the things we wound up doing after World War II, we could have done after World War I at a much lower price.
1: Bob, can I press you a bit on that? Because I'm not sure I entirely agree with that. I mean, it seems to me, on the one hand, yes, obviously, the United States had tremendous resources. The imperial powers were not done with empire, uh, where they really were by the end of World War II, or they were in such weak positions that they couldn't hope to sustain it. The kind of chaos that you had rampant in Eastern Europe and in Russia or China uh, was not really amenable to our control it's true that there was wasn't anybody in a position to challenge us directly but the China, the Japanese were out there russia was bound to recover at some point and and the kind of threat posed by radical politics was certainly one that was going to be hard for us to deal with i mean was this simply a matter of great power politics and you know if we just kept an army twice as large and kept 20,000 troops in Europe, all would have been well. I mean, I, I, I find it hard to imagine us being able to... Free, I'll just give one example and stop. You know, we, we really bludgeoned the British into giving up imperial preference and to, in effect, dismantling their empire, which they couldn't sustain anyway at the end of World War II. Well, that was not the situation in 1918, 1919. The British Empire had never been bigger, uh, its sense of itself was certainly such that they weren't ready to f- throw in the towel yet. Places like uh, India, were the circumstances really that propitious? Well, you're treating, you're treating the situation as if the
2: biggest problem was getting Britain to stop being an empire. That that was not the biggest problem. I mean, the biggest problem was, how do you bring a, a peace in Europe? Uh, how do you allow, which is, was the problem after World War II? How do you allow Germany to recover? Because Germany is the engine of Europe economically. How do you allow Germany to recover economically without it posing a a threat again uh, to France and others? Uh, You know, Germany was too big for the continent with no United States involved, it was not too big for the continent if the United States was involved. I
1: mean, S- we're going to... Spell get that out. Say, say a little bit more about what you mean by well, that. Well, just
2: think about it. If you think about um, World War One, the, the Germans had won, at least from a continent, on the continental side, they'd already accomplished the conquest of the continent for the most part by the time the Americans entered the war. And certainly, as, as the war proceeded, once the Russians were out, Uh, Germany really did control everything from, as they used to say, Brussels to Baghdad. Um, And so, you know, that was where things were headed. The only reason, that that was a reflection of the actual balance of power in Europe. Germany was too strong for France. It was too strong for France and Russia. It was too strong for France and Russia and Britain, as it turned out. And the only thing that, that, that ended the war was the arrival of the Americans. In fact, even before the Americans started playing a significant role, the Germans realized that the game was up because there were just going to be millions of fresh troops uh, coming in. So when the United States came into the war, we completely re- shifted the, what the balance of power uh, in Europe was, with the United States becoming a major factor in terms of that balance of power. Now, what did we do immediately? We pulled that back out. So we create, when people talk about what was wrong with Versailles, what was wrong with Versailles is that the Americas didn't play the role that was envisioned for the United States. Versailles could never work without the United States because it required this balance of power. So once the United States pulled out, we were back to where things were, which is that as long as Germany was able to restore itself, it was once again going to be too strong for the rest of the continent. And the, which is what which is what we learned after World War II. So the only way we've been able there's peace in Europe is because the United States stayed in Europe and allowed Germany to both uh, become wealthy when it was the Western Germany and then to unify ultimately uh, in a way that was non threatening. That's so the Bob, critical role
0: the plays in Europe. Bob, let me let me pursue this and and to get it you know how the failure took place because you describe in the book uh, Wilson as at the end of the war, being the most powerful person in the world, arguably, uh, because no, of the- the most powerful
2: person in the world, just not the most powerful person in America.
0: <laughs> ah, <laughs> you're, getting at precise, you're getting at precisely the point that I, I wanted to get at, um, yeah. because one of, the, one of the things I think is terrific about your book is the degree to which all of the uh, discussions of strategy and policy are uh, really embedded in the domestic political side of the United States you're not the first historian obviously to do that, but it's one of the most uh, thorough interweavings of the domestic politics with the uh, international politics that I've, that I've seen. And I applaud you for it, but you describe Wilson as arguably the most powerful person in the world yet uh, at Versailles, he's not able to get his way uh, with everything he wants uh, among the big four even. And then of course, he's not able to sell the piece at home and Explain that for our listeners. Why? Why wasn't he able to get what he wanted, given the relative power of the United States, the fact that the United States had become the world's greatest creditor power after he moved from being a debtor nation to the world's biggest creditor, and we had millions of men under arms at that point, you know, what made it impossible for him to convert the, you know, the potential of power into actual power?
2: Well, I'm not. I'm not actually sure what it is you are referring to when you say that there were things that Wilson lost on at at uh, at Paris. One was Shantung, for instance. The 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 Japanese wanted to hold on to it and not give it back to the Chinese, which everybody regarded as vaguely outrageous. But nevertheless, uh, Wilson wanted Japan to you know be part of the League of Nations, so he gave in on that question. There were disputes, obviously, about. Ter- you know which territory was going to go to Germany and which was going to go to other countries. There were a lot of there were compromises going on. But if you think about what the main the main problem at Versailles was the Franco-German relationship. Right, the French wanted to dismember Germany. They wanted Germany basically to cease to exist. They wanted the Rhineland to be part of France or at the very least be independent and under French control. Control, etc., and both the British and the Americans thought it would have been a disaster to to just try to do away with Germany because it would have created the desire for revenge that they were worried about, Um, and also they wanted again, uh, especially the British and the Americans were very conscious of this, but they wanted the German market back, they wanted the German economy back. So Wilson had to find a way to get the French to accept an agreement that provided them some security without dismembering Germany and he accomplished that you know that is what the treaty accomplished it 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 has set up the the situation in the Rhineland where you had foreign powers occupying the Rhineland which in guaranteed uh, as long as those foreign forces were there it guaranteed French security Um, and and then there were questions you know about reparations and, and such which were going to be dealt with later And the problem was that um, when the United States uh, voted against, when the Congress voted against the league and the United States did not take part in either the league or the treaty, it was unable to fulfill the critical role that it was going to play uh, under those circumstances. And one of the most critical roles was as chairman of the Reparations Commission, because I mean, we haven't gotten into this, but- The role of the United States with regard to the war debts, the debts owed by Britain and France and some other countries to the United States, on the one hand, and the German reparations question on the other, the United States basically drove that both by absentia and by refusing to negotiate the war debts and really created a disastrous crisis in Europe, which led to the French invasion of Germany in 1923, the French invasion of the Ruhr to collect what they regarded as their reparations payment, which sent Germany into the economic tailspin and the hyperinflation and created a hatred in Germany that that the Germans never got over and basically uh, fueled Hitler's rise. I mean, nobody thinks about those events in the 1920s, but it was in the 1920s that everything was lost, in my view. And that's one of the things that I think I'm I mean, we're, we can continue discussing this, but one of the main points I'm trying to make in the book, and I think this is true in general about foreign policy, is that by the time you get to the 30s, everything is already messed up. It's not what happens in the 30s that's a disaster, Of course, although, of course, that is a disaster, but it's how did you get to the 30s? And the way you got to the 30s was by being irresponsible in the 20s. And I do want to address Elliot's points. I don't know if you want me to go continue. Sure. You want to move on with another question? No, I mean, no, no,
0: no. Go ahead.
2: One of, the, one of the interesting things about the period, you mentioned Japan, the Japanese after World War I really felt that it was an American liberal world. And they actually, as as the Japanese are wont to do, they adjusted themselves to what they regarded as the prevailing current. So if you look at Japan in the early 20s, at least from 1920 to, the, to the like 1925 or 26, Japan was moving in a very liberal direction and include, and also in a non-militaristic uh, direction. you had you had a civilian leader, I think for the first time perhaps in Japan, but in any case uh, you it, it was a, it was a rarity and you had the military's defense budget being cut. So it really was a pretty as I say, it was a pretty permissive environment. The Russians were comp- they were out of Europe. I mean once they were defeated, Uh, you know, by Polish forces on the outskirts of Warsaw, they were done, you know, making revolution in Europe. They were on their backs. Germany was obviously on its back. When you get to the questions of the empire, you know, I didn't know that it was our goal in in life to undo the British and French empires. Well, hold hold on a second, Bob. That's not what I said. But the treaty was not a
1: failure because we didn't undo the British empire. Hey, uh, Bob, you're distorting what I said. The the question is whether the United States had the ability to impose the kind of order that it could impose in in 1945, after Germany had been devastated, totally disarmed, occupied, and was going to be reconstructed by us. Ditto Japan. And what I'm trying to say is that I don't. I I mean, I take some of your argument, but I think you're pushing it very far. It's very clear. For example, the Germans did not accept the outcome of World War One period. Now, they particularly did not accept it in the East. And that's why somebody like uh, Gustav Stresemann is very, very careful not to be okay with Germany's borders in the East. And he makes it clear that they're open to revising them. And I I have to say, I also find it very hard to understand, okay, what exactly would that active American role have been that would have prevented World War II? It's Okay, we could have done a better job with war debts. Do you think we're going to Guarantee France's borders with a hundred thousand troops stationed in France. I, know, Elliot, guaranteed- I mean
2: I, I actually go into this in great detail in the book, specifically talking about what. Not all, this is not me talking in retrospect either. This is not you know twenty twenty hindsight. There were significant and important officials in Europe, American officials. The U.S. ambassador to Germany, for instance, whose name was Alanson Houghton. He was part of the Corning Glass. He was a Corning Glass heir, and he was a political appointee uh, and, yet, and very much trusted by the Harding administration. And he spent all his time in Germany in the early 1920s warning that American policies were, in fact, driving Germany toward radicalism. He was specific, specifically talking about the connection between war debts and reparations and the resulting French policies uh, that were very aggressive toward Germany. The, the U.S. ambassador in France, another political appointee, uh, begged uh, the, uh, the, the State Department to look into at least uh, having some kind of forgiveness for debt, maybe not a complete forgiveness, but even a willingness to talk about the debt, which the United States was not uh, willing to do. We had an incredibly capable uh, general whose name was uh, Allen, General Allen, who was the commander of the American forces in the Rhineland. And even though he really operated without instructions, he did a tremendous job of, of sort of um, uh, negotiating among the French and the Germans and the British and sort of keeping everything uh, uh, relatively stable. Uh, when the crisis over the war uh, that I mentioned before uh, arose, uh, every single country in Europe, Germany, Britain, and France particularly, begged the United States to just keep a few thousand troops in the Rhineland because the existence of those few thousand troops, it wasn't, nobody was talking about the need for the United States to go to war. They were, they viewed those troops as a stabilizing presence. And you were right that the Germans never accepted the, the Versailles settlement, but as long as they had foreign troops sitting in the Rhineland, they had no choice. And they did accept it. And one of the great contributions of American foreign policy, which we can get into why this happened, was that we put pressure on the French to withdraw their forces early from the Rhineland ahead of the Versailles Treaty schedule. And as it happened, when Hitler took power, the troops were already gone i don 't think, by the way, the Germans would have allowed Hitler would have given Hitler power if the troops were still in the Rhineland, and I'm certainly confident that Hitler himself would have had a much more difficult time if he had been deal if he had come to power and there were still American, French and British troops still sitting in the Rhineland as it was as they were supposed to under the Versailles agreement and so Robin, it, is being, it could actually have been done at a very low very low cost to ourselves. And, you know, and then you get into the question of whether we, you know, there was no way in the world that we were ever actually going to do that. And we can have that argument, that because I think that becomes a political issue in the United States as much as anything else.
1: I, I mean, okay, I, I think we'll, uh, we, we should move on to something else. I, I'll, I guess I'll just stake out my position, which is, you know, although I certainly agree with you, you know, there's a lot more the United States could have done. The war debts thing was a particularly stupid policy. It probably would have been a good idea to try to maintain uh, some sort of American military presence in Europe. I, th- I think it just there not it, it seems to me there's something of a danger in assuming that the only agency in this uh, situation is American, and that the only variable that really matters is what the United States does, as opposed to all the stuff that's churning on in German society throughout Eastern Europe and and elsewhere. And that if you know only the United States pulls the right levers, everything's good. And I guess I'm part of my promise. I'm not entirely convinced by that. But let's let's move on. Eric, over to you. Well, I just wanted Bob to.
0: I don't want to completely move on yet. I mean, because you know, I want to get at kind of what it was that kept Americans from behaving more responsibly, as you suggest. Part of it is. You know, we we've rewritten the history to say, oh, there was you know this you know United States went completely isolationist in the 20s and 30s, but we're very active diplomatically in the 20s. Now, part of it is because we're solving problems we created, right? That you're adverting to the absence from the uh, reparations commission, the refusal to reschedule the debt. I mean, uh, or to forgive the debt. I mean, uh, Coolidge says, President says, they hired the money, didn't they? So we insist. That the debts be repaid, which forces the Brits and the French to insist on the reparations because they can't repay the debts without the reparations, so we get and then, after the crisis breaks out, it's American bankers essentially and diplomats who solve the problem at least temporarily with the Dawes plan and the young plan and i I think it's important to remember how vital that was. I mean, Dawes, you know, uh, is, it's really young, I guess, who puts the plan together, but it's in Dawes's name. And then he ends up being the vice president. There's a, there's a lot going on here. And it's, and, and this is why, you know, ultimately,
2: uh, if, if your readers would, if they want to, they can read my book and, and see, see how they feel yeah. about this. I'm I, But I do want to make it clear. I'm not just saying I think something could have happened that didn't happen you know, I don't believe really in counterfactual history and I, and I don't write a counterfactual history here. Right. But, what, but what I do point out is that this was a policy choice that was presented to American officials, which they rejected. It, it isn't that no one ever thought of it and it could, uh, uh, you know, and, and it, it, no one thought that it was even remotely possible. that they, they did. And, and Elliot, I just have to say, it isn't enough to say Germany was a mess. I, I go into great detail about exactly in what way Germany was a mess and exactly in what way out, you know, there's no such thing as, especially Germany at this time, as there are things going on in Germany, and then there are the things that the rest of the world is doing. Germany is an occupied country. Germany is entirely dependent on well, the rest hold, of the hold world. Hold on.
1: Germany's not an occupied country. There yes, no. British the mainland region. is occupied at the end of Germany, the Germany world, isn't it? The Rhineland is, a, you said Germany is an occupied country. The Rhineland was occupied. Berlin was not Sorry, occupied. Is the Rhineland part of Germany? It, yes, but come on. It, this is nothing like 1945. Berlin I'm was occupied by it, Allied it was troops. Enough. It was enough. Germany was not allowed to have larger
2: than a hundred thousand forces, and there were there were tens of thousands of foreign troops sitting on German
1: territory. Were and, they not? And, and do you think it would have been possible to keep Germany down to an army of a hundred thousand yes. indefinitely? It isn't
2: about. It wasn't about keeping them down with an army. It was about the fact that their government was constrained as to what they could possibly do by the existence of these great power foreign forces sitting in their territory that was what in, Versailles in the
1: early, was in, to the, in, the early tw- in the early 20s undoubtedly but the I mean it, well I, I don't want to beat a dead horse yeah, It's dead like it how do you seems- right. and
2: then the question is how do you get from the early 20s to the 30s and it is not just stuff happened you know it isn't just there was a depression and it isn't just Hitler got elected. all of those events are actually intertwined. With policy decisions that are being made by the great powers, including by the United States, and you know, let's talk about the Dawes Plan because Eric, I'm sure you're referring to. There is this 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 school of thought about the 1920s has grown up in the American Academy, and my, our dear friend Mel Leffler is one of the is one of the proponents of the idea that Americans were not doing nothing in the 1920s. They were very active diplomatically, and they. You know, they came up with the Kellogg-Briand pact, which is also not really true, um, and they were involved in all this economic diplomacy. The economic diplomacy was a failure. The Dawes plan was a failure. All the Dawes plan did, if you really think about it, and this is what Keynes wrote at the time, Keynes was complaining about the Dawes plan, not because he didn't want to help Germany, he certainly did. But all the Dawes plan did was take private loans from American citizens, private bankers, Send them to Germany so that Germany could then pay them in the form of reparations, so that right. the reparations could then go to Jer- Britain and France, so that Britain and France could pay the United States. It did right. not, in fact, lead to an improvement in the German economy because it didn't right. lead to greater investment, greater exports, greater anything. It just was a way to keep money flowing so that the reparations payments could keep flowing. That was not of any benefit. It was an entirely selfish activity on the part of the United States. Um, And it also, in the process, one of the great mistakes, one of the great tragedies of the Dawes plan is it was not U.S. government policy. The Dawes plan was shaped by bankers for bankers. And in order to get bankers to lend money to Germany, you had to do a few things to guarantee that to their loans. And one of those things you had to guarantee was that France was never going to attack Germany again. So the minute that you said that France was never going to attack Germany again, that blew up the entire security apparatus set up by Versailles, right? The Americans undid Versailles. Not only did they not participate in it, but through their economic manipulations, they also undid it as, as any kind of force to contain German power. So. I don't know what would have happened. I'm not saying that if you get everything right, then then the world is perfect. There obviously would have been all kinds of other kinds of crises. And I'm sure that would have happened. But I just want to be clear, we're not talking about saying we're 100,000 troops enough to keep Germany down. Germany would not have gotten to where it got to if we had if we had conducted we and the French and the British conducted a more intelligent policy, it seems to me.
0: Yeah, and I, I I'm I don't disagree with anything you just said. The point I was making about the economic uh, diplomacy, which was, as you say, banker's diplomacy, and it was done in in order to get bankers to loan money to Germany to keep this whole ramshackle system going. But I guess the point I was making was, or trying to make, was that it was this persistent refusal of the United States to undertake any kind of political commitment or any kind of military commitment to the security of Europe that undermined The whole situation. And so this goes to the uh, one of the themes i know, found in the book, which is this the persistence of ideology as an influence on American policy, you know, and and part of that ideology was we don't take on political obligations. And part of what is fascinating to me about your book is how we get from that point to FDR in nineteen. Forty-one, and and how we get to the point where Americans become persuaded that whether they want to or not, they have to undertake a more active role and more, you know, in a more political and military role in the security of of Europe and and ultimately Asia as well. Right. I mean, look. There's a
2: there's obviously a, the United States is a, is paradoxical or contradictory in this way, right? I mean. Here's the 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 conundrum is as follows: The United States is invulnerable. It's certainly invulnerable in that period. I think it's invulnerable. It's been invulnerable throughout the entire period. Um, There there was no way that if the United States you know did sufficient took sufficient steps that they could be attacked and invaded by anybody else. So it's not hard to understand why Americans who were operating in that situation might say. We don't care what happens in the rest of the world. It can only bring us trouble. We're fine, and we don't need to be involved. Therefore, that means that everything we do in the world is a choice. And like I, I don't get into this in the book, but this whole dichotomy we've set up between wars of choice and wars of necessity, I don't think the United States has ever fought a war of necessity. And I'm not sure there is such a thing as a war of necessity. You can always not fight. Um, You know, we we told the Czechs not to fight, right? So obviously it wasn't necessary. But certainly in the case of the United States, which does not have a vulnerability to foreign attack, it's always a choice when we act. So we have a natural feeling that we don't need to get involved and why should we? However, we also... are as you say uh, we're a highly ideological people we're probably the most ideological people in the world given that our our founding principles are our nationality you know it's not blood and soil it's it's about our beliefs and i think it's become i think it's very clear uh, the 20th century shows this and i think the cold war shows this and i think our current policy toward ukraine shows this when americans perceive that the liberal world Outside, even outside America's borders is fundamentally under threat. Uh, they are unwilling to tolerate uh, the toppling of liberalism as the as as the hegemonic force in the world. And I, that's the way I would put it too, because it's not America's hegemony they're interested in, it's liberal hegemony they're interested in. Um, and so why did we get involved in World War I? Ultimately, because Germany was an autocratic militaristic regime that was hostile to liberalism, overtly hostile to liberalism. What, same thing in, in World War II. And one of the things, if you had said, asked me what are the themes of this book, one of the things that I, I, I discovered is that if you ask me what was the turning point for, American, for the American public as to when they decided they really needed to start doing something about what was going on in Europe, it was Kristallnacht. It wasn't even Munich. Uh, people had mixed feelings about Munich, but but Kristallnacht really shocked the sensibilities of Americans, and uh, really, in the same way that the Lusitania sinking colored Americans' attitudes towards Germany for the next few years, it didn't lead immediately to war, but it definitely was the background behind the decision to go to war. Uh, similarly, Germany's behavior—believe it or not. Toward the Jews uh, was so outrageous to at least a majority of Americans, not all Americans, because one of the was one of the consequences of Kristallnacht in nineteen thirty eight is a rise in anti Semitism in the United States. Uh, but nevertheless, the sort of outrage at that I think set the set the stage for what Roosevelt would later do, which is sort of gradually get the United States more and more involved.
1: You know, the Holocaust Museum had a very interesting exhibit on Kristallnacht. Uh, which they crowdsourced to a bunch of high school students around the country, just what did your hometown newspaper cover about it? it turns out there was an enormous amount of coverage across the country. Okay. Uh, which, And I must say, when I saw that exhibit, I was, I was quite surprised. I did That's not what I would have expected. You know, Bob, in your book, you say something which I think is really at the core of the conversation. I wanted to read it and get you to riff a bit on it. It's uh, bottom of page 337. You're talking about the Kellogg-Briand pact, which I agree was stupid. And then uh, you say the following, this powerful, almost religious conviction, however, tended to blind Americans to the underlying realities of power that had produced the world they considered the triumph of liberal principles. They did not realize that if the world seemed to be moving in a liberal direction, it was because liberal powers had held a near monopoly of power since the end of the war, and this state of affairs was coming to an end. And that, you know, not just in this book, but I think in other things you've written, that seems to me to be sort of a central theme of your thinking about American foreign policy. I was wondering if you could just expand on it, if you want to make it relevant to the world that we're in today. You know, you've said we're an ideological nation, so perhaps we tend to overvalue the impact of ideology on its own. Just talk a bit about that.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, we because we're children of the Enlightenment, we have a kind of built-in prejudice in favor of the idea of progress, um, the idea that you know human beings are sort of uh, as as they learn more, as knowledge expands, as science uh, learns more, uh, then human beings get better. And this you can read this today in people like stephen Pinker uh, and, and others who who think that sort of the Enlightenment has sort of triumphed. And it's it's the principle inherent in in Frank Fukuyama's end of history thesis, which. People joke about, um, but I think most most people still do feel roughly like there is a teleological, you know, uh, element to 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 the world, and that we are heading, uh, you know, things are getting better. And and this is a myth, um, in my view. And what I've what I've argued in other books is that actually liberalism is an aberration more than the culmination of human development. And the reason that liberalism has spread is because the nations that believe in liberalism, chiefly the United States, have been the most powerful nations in the world since you know since basically World War I, except when they chose not to pay any attention to the world and let others get more powerful. Um, but that is what it is. Power is what sustains ideas. Ideas are important. Ideas are what people, by the way, I believe that ultimately, We have a misguided understanding of what interests are because we think in terms of interests only in terms of material terms, in terms of security and economics, etc. Whereas it's clear that not only for the United States, but for all countries at all times in history, uh, people have been willing to fight and die for beliefs. They've been willing to to, uh, uh, undo their own security or damage their own security. In the interest of whatever it is that they're believing or whatever they think ought to be, and so the United States gets singled out for being, uh, you know, a crusader in this in this regard. But my view is that every we're in a constant ideological struggle. We we thought ideology meant communism, and then after communism, there was no more ideology. But it. <laughs> The oldest ideological dispute is between absolutism and liberalism, at least as far as we're concerned, which goes back a couple of hundred years. It's the oldest for us anyway. And that dispute has continued, I think, that, and we're still fighting that dispute. And so, which gets us to today, when we see someone like Putin... It, attacking a country that wants to be part of the liberal world like Ukraine, we do see that. At, and Putin is a you know representative of a major power with a with a nuclear force and at least theoretical military potential. That's when we start getting nervous. Long before there is any actual threat to America's physical security, you know the loss of Ukraine is not going to affect American security. And yet Americans are clearly willing. They don't say this, but they are willing to risk war uh, in order to help the Ukrainians because they are, in fact, uh, uh, representative of the idea that Americans are willing to to expend money and and even fight for to to ensure that that liberal idea is not destroyed.
0: Bob, I want to kind of carry this thread forward in kind of in two ways. One, you. Uh, have now in the last few minutes of our conversation, you've talked about the Lusitania and Kristallnacht and how that shaped American opinion and the ideological underpinnings of that. And I, I think you make a very powerful case in everything you've written that we've always, as a nation, had these ideological predispositions that have shaped the way we see the world. A lot of critics say, oh, look, this framing of, you know, American foreign policy as democracy versus autocracy, it's oversimplified, you know, it doesn't take into account that sometimes our allies are not democratic kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Egypt, et cetera. But you make the point very profoundly that it's not just you talk about World War II. It's not a threat to our physical security. It's the moral and ideological considerations that ultimately drive us in what kind of world are we content to live in if we don't do this. And then the the second piece of it I'd like you to get into is you talk about the fact that, and this is also in the excerpt of your book that the Washington Post published that Americans, 70% of Americans did not want to go to war before World War II, but 70% of them wanted to do whatever it took to stop Hitler. It's a little bit, because you've raised the Ukraine framing, it's a little bit like that, I think, today, right? Americans want to stop Putin. They don't want him to succeed. But as President Biden has said, they don't want World War III and a nuclear war either. So How does that all end up squaring itself up in in American historical perspective?
2: Well, I I don't know. You know, it's hard to predict where this is headed, but it it is worth it is certainly true as a just historical matter that the position that we've taken on Ukraine right now is exactly the position, as you say, that we took on Europe uh, in the late 1930s with when we started doing Lend-Lease and other activities to help help the british and the and you know it was sort of everything short of war and and i think that the situations are, are sufficiently different that i don't think this needs to lead to war but it, it there's nothing inherent about our position that prevents it you know you know it's not like it, 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 We are in the fortunate circumstance that I think the last thing in the world that Putin wants is for us to get involved in the war. And in fact, we've been engaging in sort of a remarkable amount of self-deterrence in our in what we think is a very clever escalation. Um, The reality is he's losing to the Ukrainians, or at least he's at a draw with the Ukrainians. Does he want to play? Does he want to play against NATO and the United States? Obviously not. Uh, so we're not in quite the same situation because unfortunately, Hitler, after he's, after he had succeeded at Munich, there was no stopping him short of war. You couldn't bluff him out of it. You couldn't sanction him out of it. There there does get to be a point where there's no turning back. If you want to look at the, if you want to try to force an analogy between that period and this period, think about what would have happened if the Czechs had fought back in 1938. Um I think we have enough. You know, whether you want to read Wick, Williamson Murray or whether you know what you know, there. Are, I think the general consensus now is that the Czechs actually were quite formidable, uh, and if they had had Russian and i Russian, if they would had French and British support, uh, they not only could have fought the Germans, but they might have actually beaten the Germans. Meanwhile, in Germany, the military, as you know, was at that moment. And it's most forward-leaning in terms of overthrowing Hitler. And they thought that the Czech the, the Czech conflict was going to be a disaster, and that the British and French would get in the war, and that Germany would be beaten, and then that would be their opportunity to overthrow Hitler. So, if in fact, and by the way, why didn't the French and British want to back Czechoslovakia? Because they didn't, they couldn't trust the Americans to help them. And I'm not talking about fighting. I'm talking about just giving them, you know, letting letting them have money you know, doing anything to support them, you couldn't be, they couldn't be sure the United States wouldn't actually come out against them. So for lack of a willingness to fight in in Czechoslovakia, Hitler went on to be the Hitler that we now know. The interesting thing is now we're playing that, that that sort of, uh, that pattern again, only this time the Czechs are being allowed to fight. This time the Czechs are fighting. This time the Czechs are being armed and supported uh, by the outside powers. And this time I do think Putin's rule is in jeopardy uh, at this, you know, at this point. Uh, and what, you know, I'm not saying that, that his likely successor is anybody that we're going to be in love with, but I do think Putin is in trouble. So, uh, you know, uh, this time give us credit for being early enough. I wish we'd been earlier. I think we could have deterred Putin from attacking Ukraine at all if we'd been tougher in his previous uh, activities, you know, in 2008 vis-a-vis Georgia, in 2014 vis-a-vis Crimea. I think in both cases, we we were sufficiently timid that he thought he could keep going. But be that as it may, here we are. And he is stuck on what is essentially step one of regaining Russian hegemony, in Eastern Europe. And so I think that, you know, that's progress from where we were in the 1930s.
1: Could I ask you about uh, some of the statesmen you talk about? I, I think the impression that I had as I was reading the book is you were a little bit more sympathetic to Woodrow Wilson than I had expected. Yeah. And I, I so I'd be curious to hear, if, you know, your, your take on him. I'd be even more interested to hear your take on FDR. I mean, I think you correctly point out, you know he's an isolationist at some level up through the mid 30s, um, and then of course he changes around. There is continues to be a historical a debate among historians: did he kind of push as far as he could in the period from the beginning of World War One to the American uh, entry after Pearl Harbor? Others people say no, he was actually being too cautious. American op- public opinion would have been willing to accept an even more aggressive policy particularly uh, towards Germany. so talk to us about that
2: well on Wilson you're right i I myself was a little surprised he he's 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 not an attractive man to to read about he He was you know incredibly arrogant, incredibly stiff um you know he he was not great at dealing with people who disagreed with him, et etc. Um, and he had a tendency as president, which made him both very successful, but was also uh, ultimately, I think, to some extent, his undoing to speak in inflated language about everything that he was doing. It was never, you know, he couldn't admit ever that we had an interest in something. It was always for the highest conceivable motives. And so a lot of his rhetoric is taken by historians and I think, you know, used in a, to caricature him. Uh, What I wound up believing was, look, he faced a very real concrete problem when he went to Versailles. It had nothing to do with making the world safe for democracy or any utopian ideas at all. He was trying to deal with a very concrete problem, which we discussed earlier, which is how to provide French security so that Germany can be brought, put back on its feet after the war. Um, I think he did a pretty good job. What is the League about? And this is where, you know... The League is often portrayed as the most idealistic example of sort of Wilson's quasi-religious, you know, uh, idealism. Uh, the truth, first of all, the first person to recommend a League of Nations after the start of World War One in early nineteen in in, in in 1914, early in the war, is none other than Theodore Roosevelt. He wrote a series of essays in which he basically outlined the principles of a League of Nations, slightly different from Wilson, but nevertheless. Wilson was actually a latecomer to the idea of the League. It was not his idea at all, and he was resistant to it for the same reason that any American president would be, which is he knew the American people didn't want to make any commitments. So the League was actually, an Article 10 and all these things that, we, that were debated at the time. Were actually a way of trying to create some halfway house that would, uh, which would provide some kind of American assurance that the, that the Americans would be around to provide security without uh, agreeing to some kind of formal treaty, and the truth is that Article Ten never bound any the United States to do anything whatsoever. Uh, it was it was demagogued into into appearing that way, but Wilson was trying to solve the equation of how do I provide the French a reasonable reassurance without doing something the American people don't want to do, which is commit to their defense? And the answer was the league. And it was not only Wilson's answer, it was a lot of people's answer. So I'm I am sympathetic to him. And I and I started out being more sympathetic to Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt. But I wound up thinking that he behaved completely irresponsibly at the end when he joined Lodge in opposing the League of Nations and the treaty and all those other things, just just at a pure partisan political uh, spite. FDR, I, I have to say, I, I'm an, I'm impressed with FDR. It, it's easy to go back and second guess and say he could have done more here. he could have done more there. You know. First of all, I don't think he was ever actually an isolationist. He had to be an isolationist in order to get elected. You know, um, uh, William Randolph Hearst actually basically forced Will, R- Roosevelt to come to him and promise that he would oppose the league, even though Wilson, I mean, even though Roosevelt had always favored the league. Um, so, so Roosevelt knew what he had to do. Um, his first term is devoted to dealing with the economy, and he sounds as isolationist as anyone, but in his heart... He was an internationalist. Now, could he have moved faster? I think about, when I think about that question, I look at his, he gave this speech in 1937, which became known as the quarantine speech, in which he warned against what he called the bandit nations, the three bandit nations, which by which he obviously meant Germany, Japan, and Mussolini's Italy. And he said that we have to think about putting them under a quarantine in some way. And everybody was like, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? He was like, well, I don't really mean anything by that, but it's something we're thinking about. He got murdered for giving that speech. Uh, you know, m- members of Congress threatened to, you know, uh, impeach him over violations of the Neutrality Act, etc, etc, etc. And he made this comment to one of his, um, to one of his advisors, he said, it's, it's frightening, it's, I'm paraphrasing, it's frightening to lead when no one is following you. And so, I think he periodically did try to jumpstart American opinion. He definitely was trying to move Americans off of their isolationism. But I don't know that I would second guess someone who probably was the shrewdest political operator in the history of American politics and tell him that he didn't know what he should be doing vis-a-vis the American public. So, you know, we do we wish he'd gone further? Henry Stimson spent all his time saying to him, walk faster, Mr. President, faster, Mr. President, you know, but Roosevelt was very, you know, and I think this is true of all presidents. They don't want to depart from the what they regard as the dead center of American public opinion. This was true of Wilson. It was true of Roosevelt. I think it's true of Biden today. Uh, you have to be very careful as president not to get too far out in front of the people.
0: I mean, I think, FDR to me was always a, a Wilsonian, right? He was assistant secretary of the navy under Wilson. He's actually the Democratic vice presidential nominee in 1920 when the Democrats are essentially running on you know Wilsonianism without Wilson because he's right. crippled and can't right. can't run. But I guess the question I have for you, and particularly the comments you made about Wilson's rhetoric, by the way, I thought it was fascinating in the book. You talk about how deep Wilson's antipathy to the Bolsheviks was, which I don't think anybody really would dispute, but you talk about he really was not a man of the left, which, you know, would be news for a a large part of the current American right that thinks that Woodrow Wilson is the author of everything evil that's happened in the United (laughs) States in the last 80 years because he created the administrative state or something. Uh, And he was a, quote, progressive and woke, whatever. But my question really is, how much scope? Do you think presidents have to shape public opinion on these issues as opposed to simply uh, follow it or, or trend to the center of it? I mean, the reason I ask the question is Wilson's inflated rhetoric gets criticized, so does Truman's in 1947. And I have a sense, given you know what you say about you know the large mass of American people not wanting to get involved, not wanting to do these things, that it sometimes takes that kind of rhetoric to actually mobilize political action in the very messy democracy that you describe in, in both this book and, and in Dangerous Nation.
2: Yeah, I don't know. It's a very interesting question, Eric, and it's a good question. I guess my my initial inclination is to say, don't overstate the degree to which a president can move public opinion by just giving speeches. I think that what one thing that a president can do is take an existing feeling and reifying it, you know? I, I feel like that's what Reagan did. I don't think Reagan persuaded Americans that they needed to, you know, reverse the decline in American power. I think they elected him because that's what they wanted to do. But I think he put things in such a way that, you know, he packaged the idea in such a way that people could say, yes, that's what we want to do, you know. And I think that a president can play that role. If you really ask what Roosevelt did that pushed things along, it was the things he did more than the things he said, right? I mean, and some of the things he did, I think the American people only had the vaguest sense of its significance, you know. He had a way of always downplaying what 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 he's what he was doing? So you know you remember the sort of garden hose analogy about lend-lease. You know he made it nice. You know if you lend your neighbor a garden hose. Well, of course he was doing a lot more than lending the neighbor a garden hose. And so a lot of this homely rhetoric he used was a way of kind of easing people into what was in fact pretty serious. Now sometimes Roosevelt gets accused of sort of hiding the ball and not letting Americans know that he was leading them essentially toward war with Germany. I don't think that's true. I think he was pretty honest about the writ that he was open that this was, you know, risky behavior, but he he thought it was absolutely necessary. But, you know, if you look at what he does, beginning with, uh, you know, beginning in 1939 and on, I mean, he basically puts the United States into the war, which is why, you know, we haven't gotten to this, but sort of the puzzle of why did Hitler declare war uh, on December 11th and after the Jap- after the attack on Pearl Harbor, he didn't have to do that. From his point of view, the United States and Germany were already practically at war. I-, I don't think he thought it was actually that big a step from where they already were because Roosevelt already had the. US Navy effectively taking part in the Atlantic War. So uh, that's, that's what I think he led mostly by getting by getting things done. and, and by the way, and I'll just end on this, it was incredibly helpful to Roosevelt, as opposed, if you contrast Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt's situation with Woodrow Wilson's, Woodrow Wilson operated with a, after 1918 with a Republican-controlled Congress, a Republican-controlled Senate. We know how hard it is to get anything done when the opposition party is there, regardless of what the issue is. Roosevelt had an overwhelming majority of democratic control of Congress. I mean, the the numbers were incredibly lopsided. It wasn't even close through most of the, you know, the Republicans were really in dire condition at that time. So he was in complete control of the legislative situation, uh, which certainly made it easier for him to just, as I say, just do, he could get things done, which made a difference.
0: We're running short on time, so I want to give Elliot the last word here before we wrap up. We could go on for hours on these subjects, Bob. You've been really generous. I wouldn't mind.
1: <laughs> we, we we easily could. So, um, Bob, in the book, obviously, you talk about presidents and a couple of key statesmen, people like Elihu Root. And, uh, you know, as I think about this conversation here, you have three of us who I suppose could be uh, identified as members of a the foreign policy elite. This is the period which, where you see the formation, uh, the beginning of the formation of the elite, the foundation of things like the Council on Foreign Relations. In a way, some people would uh, put back to the inquiry, the, this collection of experts that Woodrow Wilson brings with him to Versailles. Uh, how important was that, or was it not important at all, the, the, the fact that during this period, you're beginning to get some segment of mainly American business, legal elites, to some extent, academic elites who are internationalists, who are uh, very much focused on American foreign policy, who by and large want a more activist American foreign policy. Was that important or was it really just in the end a kind of a recruiting pool for staffing senior administration positions going forward?
2: You know, it, it the, the role of Elites and intellectuals in the setting of policy in general is a very interesting subject. I I must say that from my where I look at it in this period, I would say that the intellectuals were like fleas on the back of an elephant. They were not setting the direction; they were following as much as anything. And the and the reason I say that is because if you look at the different intellectuals throughout this period, and I know you'll be shocked to hear this. They swung wildly back and forth between what they claimed their views were. So you had, for instance, a whole raft of liberal intellectuals who were completely gung ho about World War One. Uh, they, you know, people like Walter Lippmann and Reinhold Niebuhr and others like that, and a and a whole host of others, John Dewey, etc., all of whom were very enthusiastic. And then, of course, everybody decided to be disillusioned for reasons that I, to this day, don't fully understand. Uh, at which point they all decided it was a terrible disaster, and then they did this funny thing, which I love, which is they they basically after being the great cheerleaders for the war, they turned around and said, "Well, who is in who is in favor? Who got us into this war?" You know, so, so we need an investigation uh, to find out who got us into this war that we supported, um, and so and and by the way, when interesting point that to make: yes, it was true that there were internationalist institutions growing up in this period, largely to sort of hold the flag up for the League of Nations. There was a lot of, you know, Wilsonianism organizing. But if you ask me what was new, it was, in fact, the arrival of people who regarded themselves as, as I think, we do as professional foreign policy strategists, experts, etc. This was really the, you know, this was pretty much the birth of what would become realist theory occurred in this period. And the interesting thing about those elites they were against the war. The, the the really smart people around the country, you know, the, the Times military affairs correspondent, people like, um, uh, who is the, Yale? Spikeman, uh, Nicholas Spikeman, who was sort of the founder of classical realism at Yale at, at that time. They were all like, we're good. We got two oceans. Nobody can touch us. Everything's fine. And they basically held to that position. Some of them changed their views after the fall of France, but not all of them. And so um, I would say then the intellectual elite was at most divided, but but generally heading in the direction of the anti-interventionist.
1: Interesting. As you say, we could go on for a lot longer, but uh, <laughs> we have actually run out of time.
0: I promised we were going to wrap, but, I'm, but I lied I, because your uh, your last answer has prompted me to ask a question. I think Elliot will agree with this because we've done this with any number of our guests, Bob. So, you know, you, you are really the kind of definition of a public intellectual. You you have a PhD in history, so you have all the formal training of a historian. Uh, yet you sit at a at a think tank, one of the most prominent think tanks in America, Brookings, and you've written both a very powerful political essays about American foreign policy and, and now two rather big books, and I think what two more, two more coming at some point in the future. What would you uh say is the state, and I say this advisedly because, having perused your footnotes i I realize how prodigious your reading has been in the in the academic literature on American foreign relations in the twentieth century is, and how deeply you've read in it, which is why I suspect can this question fifteen fifteen years to write this book. <laughs> what is your assessment of the state of academic history today?
2: Ah, <laughs> well, I, I, I must say, I come away feeling like, in terms of the uh, history of American diplomacy and foreign policy, that the academy has really ill served the public. Um, there are obviously some stark exceptions, but. Basically, the predominance of a Marxist-Leninist interpretation of American foreign policy is so overwhelming, uh, it's, uh, and the Procrustean nature of that uh, model of understanding American foreign policy is so dominant, you know, is so, as I say, Procrustean, that I think Americans literally do not know what happened in their history. Uh, the mythology, for instance, about the Spanish-American War is, is just, it's not even, you know, it, it's impossible to penetrate. I have tried as best I could in this book to walk people through exactly how all those things happened and why. Uh, I was able to discover, for instance, that even Mark Twain was in favor of the intervention in Cuba. And you would never know that from reading American Historians. Um, American historians have bought a myth about what Theodore Roosevelt did and or did not do with regard to uh, the Philippines, for instance, that they late, has later was later disproven, but it doesn't stop them from categorizing Roosevelt as this sort of guy who got us into the Spanish American War, which is not true. Um, and this is true everywhere. again, why why is there this myth in my view about American diplomacy American, the effectiveness of American diplomacy diplomacy in the 1920s? It's because the, the, those who argue for this basic economic economic determination uh, explanation of American foreign policy can't say that it wasn't happening in the 1920s too. So they have to say, yeah, the United States as always was searching for open markets and that's what its foreign policy always is. And, and, and the result is not just that they're wrong, but as I say, that Americans therefore do not understand their own history. Uh, They do not take it seriously. I believe that historians have have turned our history into a series of cartoons, Um, you know, politically motivated cartoons, but cartoons nevertheless. And so uh, what I've tried to do here is sort of resurrect the idea that you have to look at the world through the point of view of the people that you're writing about, not just from your own point of view. And to impose uh, a, a not to try to impose a theoretical construct uh, which which forces everything into one explanation as the American historical profession unfortunately does. So I, I think uh, it would be nice if we could renew our our our, our historical researches, you know, uh, and get past this absurd Marxist Leninist interpretation that's so
0: dominant. Elliot, any obiter dicta? Uh Loads of
1: them, but I think I'll pass. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, our, our guest has been uh, Robert Kagan, the author of The Ghost at the Feast. It's a terrific
1: read. I mean, among other things, it's extraordinarily well written. Yeah, I, I will. I want to second that. I mean, this is probably the most readable account of American foreign policy, particularly for this crucial period that I've uh, ever seen. So it's it's a literary achievement as well as a scholarly one.
2: Well, thank you. Coming from you guys, that means a lot to me. So thank you.
0: And that will wrap it for this episode of Shield of the Republic. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write a review for us or uh, give us a like on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. And we'll be back with other episodes of Shield of Republic next week.